Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chasley in New York. If there is hell in the world, it is in Azovstal. Heartbreaking words from a Ukrainian official as heavy shelling continues at the steel plant in Mariupol. Images reveal what hundreds of civilians have endured now for weeks and months, relentless bombardment by Russian forces. And meanwhile inside, Ukrainian troops try their best to lift morale. That was soldiers singing the battle hymn of the Ukrainian army. The words, it is sweeter for us to die in battle than to live in chains as dumb slaves. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says more than 340 people were evacuated from Mariupol to Zaporizhia Wednesday. During his nightly address, Zelensky called for a ceasefire to allow more civilians to escape. Russia claims it will open humanitarian corridors from the Azovstal steel plant, but a commander inside the complex says the Russians have violated a truce pledge to allow those civilians to leave. And in the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, the Ukrainian military says Russian forces have had no success penetrating front lines over the past 24 hours. They say a total of 11 attacks have been repulsed, quote. Still, the Russian offensive continues. Drone footage shows devastation from airstrikes on a small town in the east and more attacks on civilian infrastructure, too. New videos showing Russian forces destroying a bridge and a railway in the central city of Dnipro. Scott McLean is in Lviv with the latest. Julia, yesterday Ukrainian troops reported extremely heavy fighting from the Azovstal steel plant. A co-commander of the Azov regiment, which is leading the fighting there, was practically begging the United Nations and the international community to do something to intervene to allow people to get out. The fighting was so intense at one point that the Ukrainians actually said that they lost contact with their fighters on the ground, though they were able to restore it later in the day. The foreign minister of Ukraine said that fighters continue to hold out in the last remaining stronghold of resistance in Mariupol. Ukraine says that Russian fighters are trying to storm the plant, though Russia denies that strongly. Late last night, the Russians did seem to extend an olive branch, saying that today, tomorrow and Saturday, there would be humanitarian corridors in place to get people out from underneath of that plant. They said that their troops would retreat, they would hold their fire and that civilians would be allowed to go in any direction they so chose, either toward Russia or toward Ukrainian held territory. You'll recall that earlier this week, more than 100 people were successfully evacuated from under the plant with the help of the United Nations and the Red Cross. And yesterday, the Ukrainian president said that almost 350 people were able to evacuate from the broader city, though not from the steel plant itself. We have no word yet on the success or failure of this evacuation mission today, though 
The last time there was a successful mission, we also heard radio silence. The last word that we have heard from the plant, though, is not an encouraging one, though, and that is that shelling overnight was nonstop. Julia? And of course, that Azov commander from within there is suggesting that the Russians have broken that truce. If we get any more details on that, we will bring it to you. For now, Russian missiles have struck a residential area in the city of Kramatorsk in the east. Sam Kiley is there. Kramatorsk was hit overnight with at least six missiles. Now, they have had clearly a devastating impact. This is a heating, a pumping station sewage area. The size of the building would indicate that it was in no way could have housed any kind of military equipment. I just got lucky. I went to the bathroom. I heard a bang. I sat down on the bed and it hit me. And all the furniture fell down. But the scenes here are absolutely extraordinary. The way that these trees have been completely decapitated, torn to shreds. And the same goes also for these homes. Now amazingly, very few people here, considering the scale of the damage, were injured and none were killed. There were 25 injured, six have been hospitalized, one is in a critical condition. And the reason for that is that at least two thirds of the city of Kramatorsk have already left. But this, without any question, is yet another strike by the Russians on a civilian residential area. Sam Kiley, CNN in Kramatorsk. Impassioned words today from the president of the European Commission on atrocities still being uncovered in Ukraine. Ursula von der Leyen saying the world will never forget the crimes being committed by Russian troops during the more than two-month-old conflict. To see the mass graves, to see the body bags, to see the scars and wounds in the houses and hospitals that have been shelled, the kindergartens, the schools, um, it, it is atrocious. It is a war crime on an everyday basis that Russia is committing. This week, the EU proposed a ban on imports of Russian oil by the end of this year as punishment for the Ukraine invasion. But the list of member states who are not yet on board with the ban seems to be growing. All this as OPEC Plus meets today to discuss the global energy supply situation. And Anna Stewart joins us now on this. Anna, as you and I have long discussed, it's an ambitious decision to try and enact an oil embargo, but not if you can't get consensus among all the states. What are we hearing about the horseplay or the negotiations behind the scenes to try and get this agreed? Well, even in the last 24 hours, the list of holdouts is actually growing. And that's mm. after this big proposal was announced by the EU Commission. And yesterday we had a tweet from the Czech Republic's prime minister, uh, a lengthy one, but it said the Czech Republic will have to apply for an exemption before the capacity of oil pipelines from other countries is increased and oil imports to the Czech Republic are secured from other sources, i.e. we want the nitty gritty of where the uh, additional oil will come from and crucially, actually, how it will get to certain countries. This adds to Slovakia and Hungary, who have both said that a one-year extension, which was being proposed for some countries yesterday, isn't enough. They say they need a minimum of three. And then, Julia, Bulgaria's deputy prime minister speaking in local media yesterday and saying that if other countries ask for an extension or an exemption, so will they. So that list is just growing. So really doesn't look like it's going to get the support it needs to be enacted as an EU-wide policy.
It's fascinating because our regular viewers, Anna, will know that we spoke to the German finance minister this week and he said, look, we're ready to do this today, but we're not going to act alone. And, and the argument could be made here that even if you don't enact an oil embargo, you can substitute if you're able to do this. You can just move away from, from Russian oil and you can buy from elsewhere. To what extent or not, perhaps, as the question goes, can OPEC plus potentially help here? Well, there's the question of can they and there's the question of will they. So the meeting today, we don't expect them to announce a big ramp up of capacity. We expect them to continue with a very gradual increase, the monthly one that we've seen. And smaller uh, OPEC members, as you know, are actually struggling anyway to meet their existing commitments. The fact of the matter is that the larger members of OPEC do have the spare capacity. I mean, I think uh, the EU imports around two and a half million barrels a day of, of oil from Russia, while the capacity within OPEC is for an additional four million barrels per day from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, also from Iraq. So the capacity is there. We just don't expect it uh, to come through from OPEC, uh, particularly, of course, with China and COVID lockdowns mean that demand is actually quite soft when you're looking at the global picture. So we don't expect any big moves uh, there today. Julia? Yeah, I was about to say, and the energy prices reflecting that fact too, not expecting anything from OPEC and very little movement on a relative basis as well after the uh, oil embargo announcement earlier this week too, tells you something. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Now, China's economy in reverse gear as COVID lockdowns strike the heart of its giant services sector. Closely watched data for April showed the sharpest monthly contraction on record. Selena Wang joins us now from Kunming, China, where she is in quarantine. Selena Wang, significant chunk of the economy, of course, the services sector. But what more can you expect in light of the lockdowns and the restrictions that we've seen? Well, what that number really hammers home is that zero COVID is just pummeling all aspects of China's economy. That services sector, as you say, is all important. It accounts for more than 50% of China's GDP and more than 40% of its employment. And we saw the numbers there. We saw it contract at the second sharpest pace on record. This comes shortly after we got the factory data showing that the factory sector had contracted for the second straight month. This is as we are seeing COVID lockdowns across China impacting these lockdowns or full or partial lockdowns, impacting at least 28 cities, impacting up to 185 million people. That is more than half of the U.S. population. These lockdowns not only snarling supply chains, disrupting people's lives, hurting the economy. These companies, they were already dealing with these rising energy and raw material costs. On top of that, they've got these lockdowns and shutdowns. It's hard for them to continue operations, but they cannot just easily pass those additional costs on to consumers since these lockdowns are impacting consumer sentiment as well. They're pushing down consumer demand. We just saw the numbers come out of this past Labor Day holiday, seeing that spending was down by more than 40%. We are seeing investment banks slash their predictions for China's GDP growth. Nomura is saying that there is growing risk of a recession in the second half of the year. And if there's any evidence that leadership is growing concerned, well, just last week, Xi Jinping himself said that the country needs to go on an all-out infrastructure spending spree to try and boost growth. Yeah, the problem is that racks up more debts. To your point, as you said, it's, it's over half of uh, the nation's GDP, over 40% of employment too, which always rings alarm bells for me. And I think the collapse that we're seeing, second only to what we saw in, in February of 2020 when the COVID outbreak first began and we watched what was going on in, in China. I, I guess the obvious question is what support measures, not yet enough and tough for you to gauge when you're uh, locked in your own room, uh, Selena. Um, but what about the possibility of perhaps easing up some of these restrictions in, in the face of the pressures that we're seeing? Or is it more of the same, particularly for Beijing now, too? 
Exactly. Well, to go to your point there on the small businesses, I mean, the support that's been given to them by and large is not nearly enough to help them to compensate them for how much these lockdowns have impacted them. In terms of easing up these restrictions, well, China's leadership has says they are doubling down on zero COVID. They've even called it a, quote, magic weapon to keep China's COVID cases low. And this zero COVID strategy, it's also been tied directly to Xi Jinping's leadership. And outside of observers of China very much see that he is not going to let up on this strategy, at least not until the very all-important party Congress coming this fall in Beijing. Even though they're only reporting about 50 COVID-19 cases a day, they are aggressively ramping up restrictions, effectively shutting down the largest district, which is home to key business and diplomatic areas, telling residents to work from home, shutting many of the transportation lines. They're rolling out its sixth round of mass testing of more than 20 million residents six rounds. And based on CNN's calculations, just one day of mass testing for Beijing is costing the city more than $10 million. Beijing has also indefinitely banned in-restaurant dining. They've announced closures of large entertainment venues, sporting venues. So continuing to see this disruption on people's daily lives. And unfortunately, there's no end in sight, Julia. No, no end in sight. Massive infrastructure spending to come, but the, uh, the discomfort and then the pain in the interim uh, continues. Day 13. Selena, you're getting there. Selena Wang, thank you for that. <laughs> Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The WHO says the real death toll from COVID is likely three times higher than officially reported. According to new data, nearly 15 million people died by the end of 2021, about 10 million more than the official tally. The World Health Organization says nearly half of the previously uncounted deaths were in India. The British Prime Minister has met with his Japanese counterpart for talks on trade and security. Boris Johnson and Fumio Kishida were expected to discuss a new defence deal as well as Russia's war on Ukraine. Earlier, Mr Kishida also urged London to invest in Japan and announced plans to reduce dependency on Russian energy. Israeli police and Palestinians clashed earlier Thursday in a prayer hall at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem. It's Israeli Independence Day and groups of Jews visited the holy site. Police say Palestinians were shouting and throwing objects at them before officers entered the mosque. Israeli forces fired rubber bullets and flashbang canisters. Police say one officer was slightly injured. No Palestinian injuries were reported. Okay, straight ahead, Singaporean banking giant DBS warns the Ukraine war will cause a global slowdown. We've got the CEO and the head of Norwegian fertilizer giant Yara on working with Ukrainian farmers to avert a food crisis. That's next, stay with CNN. Welcome back to a tightrope walk between inflation and recession. The governor of the Bank of England framing the challenge for most global central banks today. The Bank of England raising base rates by a quarter percent to one percent, its fourth consecutive hike. It follows the Federal Reserve, which yesterday hiked rates by half a percentage point, promising more half point moves, but nothing more aggressive for now. That notable bit of softening of the Fed's tone helped trigger a relief rally on Wall Street Wednesday. The Fed seems to understand that tightrope walk it's facing and the dangers of over tightening as global growth slows, as we've been discussing it's evident in the data today, too, as U.S. stock futures softer. German factory exports show a drop of more than 6.5% in March. New numbers from Turkey show inflation hitting near 70-year highs. 
And as you mentioned earlier, China's services sector contracting last month at its second sharpest pace on record. Unprecedented times for investors and for the global financial sector. The CEO of Asia-based banking giant DBS put it perfectly by saying, quote, the world has changed dramatically in the last three to four months. He says the war in Ukraine is triggering a massive global slowdown. DBS recently reporting a 10% drop in first quarter profits, so significantly above expectations. The bank says future results are tough to forecast. DBS Bank CEO Piyush Gupta joins us on the show now. Piyush, always fantastic to get your insight and wisdom here on the show. Can we start first with what we're seeing from global central banks having to hike rates to control inflation, but at the same time recognising, I think, to your point, that growth is slowing in an incredibly uncertain environment to boot? What do you make of what we're seeing? Well, it is tricky for central banks, uh, mm. Julia, because uh, you know clearly the specter of stagflation uh, is on us. And what that means is if uh, growth rates are coming off, uh, you need accommodative policies. On the other hand, uh, you know, the social politics of every country uh, mean that you have to very, be very focused on the inflation agenda. Uh, as you know, in Singapore, the MAS actually started tightening uh, sooner than most. Uh, but more recently, even central banks like um, the Reserve Bank of India yesterday uh, surprised with uh, mid-cycle tightening. Uh, and of course, you have the other side of the coin, which is the PBOC, which is continuing to pursue an accommodative monetary policy. Uh, but on balance, uh, I think both central banks are inclined to start putting their foot uh, on the pedal. Now, this obviously has uh, consequences for the investment environment, which is what's uh, intended to be. Um, and therefore, I, I worry a little bit about the uh, impact on the investment cycle uh, in the months to come. You've described it as a, a massive slowdown and you touched upon what Singapore's doing to try and contain rising prices, India too. We've got the war in Ukraine as, as one part of it, which is precipitating what we're now calling a global food crisis, but it's not the only pricing pressures that we're seeing. Uh, at the same time, um, you have to balance that with, with the sheer uncertainty that's created by this and perhaps the confidence knock, whether it's for, for consumers or businesses too. Just make it specific for what you're seeing in, in your region specifically. Well, all of the above. So in the mm. first place, it is not just an energy price crisis. It has attendant consequences on the entire commodity complex. Uh, and I really worry about food because uh, mm. food prices uh, for many specific items are beginning to uh, shoot up quite markedly. Uh, and I worry uh, later in the second half of the year, you might actually start seeing the consequences of that uh, in um, uh, most of the countries in our region. Uh, so that's uh, one part of the problem. The second part of the problem is what you alluded to. Uh, markets have sold off. And so there is a huge crisis of confidence. Uh, and that shows up in uh, just uh, uh, animal spirits. People are not investing, uh, individuals are not investing, uh, putting money to work. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, consumption demand is slowed down. Uh, so if you look at the major engines of growth for our region, uh, exports uh, have somewhat slowed. Partly that's been uh, driven by the COVID lockdowns in China. Uh, consumption demand is slow, partly because of this confidence issue. Uh, and the investment cycle, like I said, is beginning to be a little bit uncertain on the back of interest rate increases. And therefore, most of your general drivers of growth have some question marks on them as we uh, step into the back end of the year. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because when I, I looked at, at what your results showed, you can see the sort of pullback in, in activity in investment banking, the fact that some of the wealth management clients are clearly saying, look, we're not sure about putting cash or, or capital to work at this point, but the loan growth actually remains quite strong. So I guess what leads what, in my mind, is one of the critical questions for you. Do we see some of that confidence come back and what does it take? Or do you start to see the slowing and perhaps some of the loan demand too as the smaller businesses go, OK, we're really catching a cold now as well? Well, when I said that things are uncertain, it's because it's not entirely... <laughs> Crystal ball yeah, time. Right but, you know, I'll tell you uh, an ironic uh, uh, thing, though. Because commodity prices are up, in nominal terms, a loan demand is up. Uh, you know, if you had to finance a barrel of oil, it costs 60 bucks, not cost 110 bucks. And therefore, that uh, actually uh, helps in loan demand, uh, the value of demand, not the volume. Uh, and so that is a consideration. Uh, however, um, I think uh, if global GDP is off by a percentage point, as both IMF and World Bank uh, suggest, then it is likely that loan demand will start tapering down uh, mm. in the back end uh, of the year. Now, the flip to that, though, is uh, in our part of the world, China counts for a lot. And right. if the Chinese markets have bottomed down uh, and you start seeing some pickup um, in uh, the stock markets in China, that might bring, uh, uh, bring con consumer confidence back. And that could have a positive impact on the investment environment. The other thing that is happening is ex-China uh, countries are opening up for travel. So the COVID uh, uh, seems to, and people have started started figuring, uh, you know, you live with COVID. Uh, but as uh, travel picks up, uh, that also tends to help consumer demand. So like I said before, there are sort of twos and, you know, the ups and downs. I mean, they're both, both sorts of drivers at this point. Yeah, it's fascinating. Ugh, so many questions based on that. Um, what's the bigger concern to you? Perhaps over-tightening in the United States, for example, that pushes North America perhaps closer or into recession or the adherence to zero COVID in China and perhaps not enough stimulus in the form of infrastructure spending, perhaps or simply that they can't because they're spending such long periods in, in lockdown. The slowing of which side and the risks are, are greatest in your mind amid this level of uncertainty? I know it's tough to call. Well, Julia, I think for uh, Asia in general, um, you know, both things matter. Uh, if you look back at 2013, the U.S. Uh, tightening the taper tantrum led to a significant outflow of dollars from the region. And therefore, central banks and governments had to react very precipitately. So obviously, that could be a concern. Uh, at the same time, China continues to be our largest trading partner from most of ASEAN. And therefore, slowdown in China is uh, consequential uh, as well. So it's really a, a strange situation where both things uh, uh, do matter to us. Uh, having said that, I do think most Asian countries today are a lot more um, robust than they were five years ago at the taper tantrum. Uh, foreign exchange reserves are high. And I think, therefore, the capacity to withstand uh, higher rates or, uh, or issues in the U.S. is probably a little bit more than it was. Uh, whereas the demand side from China, because it reflects in consumer confidence immediately, uh, could have a slightly uh, larger impact on the region. Yeah, I mean, we called it a tightrope at the beginning of the show here, and it's, uh, it feels thinner than that, quite frankly. It feels like a thread. Um, I would not be forgiven if I didn't ask you about the future of your crypto 
retail consumer offerings. Um, I know it's a challenge and I've, I've certainly had word from some sort of startup funds in the region that are saying, look, actually Singapore's not that friendly anymore and perhaps we need to move over and some I know have moved to Dubai. Piyush, is it a technology issue that, that means you've delayed this or is it a regulation or, or both? And is the promise of uh, a crypto offering from DBS coming, if not this year, in 2023? What can you tell me? Well, Julia, we do have a crypto offering already. Uh, except it's focused on accredited investors. So people who have the means as well as the uh, uh, capacity to be able to deal uh, with the speculative asset class. Uh, and it's doing reasonably well. We have about a billion dollars of assets under custody in uh, crypto coins. Uh, we continue to expand that offering. Uh, what I had contemplated was being able to take it beyond accredited investors into the mass market. Uh, and we figured that there's something that we are uh, uh, not likely to be able to do this year. Uh, partly it reflects regulatory concern about taking it to uh, investor base that uh, might not be suitable mm. for it. And partly it's just that it takes uh, somewhat longer from a technology standpoint to get all our ducks in a row. So it is something that's not off the table. We will come back and um, consider it, but it's probably like to happen a year from now rather than now. Yeah, and the idea of protecting less sophisticated investors, um, you know, seems reasonable, I think, to, uh, to me and to, to others. Piyush, always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. Piyush Gupta, the CEO Pleasure of to be on. Bank. Stay well, sir. Thank you. Welcome back. And a reminder of our top stories today, a Ukrainian commander inside the Azovstal plant in Mariupol saying there is fierce fighting going on as we speak. Officials say Russian forces were repelled yesterday after they breached the perimeter of the complex. Russia claims it will open evacuation corridors from, for civilians from the plant today. But there is no sign yet any civilians have been able to leave. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said 344 people were evacuated yesterday from Mariupol and the surrounding areas. In the east, Russian missiles struck a residential area in the city of Kramatorsk in the Donetsk region. At least 25 people were injured and six were taken to hospital. Now, as we were just discussing, looming food crisis as war rages on, Ukraine and Russia are key to the global food system. Together, they make up around 29% of global wheat exports, 19% of world corn supplies, and 80% of world sunflower oil exports, or at least they did before the war began. Now, as costs continue to rise, one of the world's largest fertilizer makers is still operating in Ukraine. Yara, which was founded in 1905 to solve the emerging famine in Europe, is supplying farmers still tending to their fields despite the dangers. Before the war broke out, Yara CEO Svein Holsetter sounded the alarm on food crises. In March, he told investors it's no longer whether there will be a food crisis, but rather how large it will be. And he joins us now. It's fine. Great to have you on the show. I want to begin in Ukraine, firstly, because I know you have employees there, but also because I believe you are also managing to get fertilizer in. What can you tell us? What's safe to tell us? Well, thanks for having me, Julia. And uh, let me first just say that I'm deeply concerned about the events unfolding in uh, in, in Ukraine, and we condemn the the Russian war uh, and and, and the, what's happening on the ground there is it's deeply disturbing, it's heartbreaking. And in addition 
to the um, to, to this, it has ripple effects throughout the whole world food system. And as you just went through the uh, the importance of both uh, Russia and Ukraine on on the global food system is uh, is very large. And uh, fertilizer is a key a part of this because uh, fifty percent of the food that is grown in the world is a direct result of fertilizer. And then for us, it's about uh, helping the Ukrainian farmers uh, to keep up their production, which in, in this uh, period is extremely uh, challenging. I mean, farmlands are being used as battlefields. We see pictures of farmers in, in bulletproof wests. We see uh, uh, and hear stories of mines in the fields of the farmers and, and, and tractors and equipment being used for other uh, purposes than farming. So this is an extremely challenging situation. But uh, with that, I'm extremely impressed by our Ukrainian colleagues with the courage that they're they're showing in being out there in the fields, helping the farmers, and trying to maintain maintain uh, farm production at as high level as uh, possible in these very challenging circumstances. Yeah, it's incredible bravery, and it's such vital work. Um, to to your point, and and as we all been discussing, with regards to the the broader food crisis, both in Ukraine and beyond, I believe your team also at huge risk have managed to get 120 trucks of fertilizer into Ukraine to try and provide support to these farmers. Again, I appreciate you have to be very careful what you say for security reasons, but can you just give us some perspective on on how much that is relative to what you would ordinarily have been delivering in a in a normal year and, and what you're hearing from, from the Ukrainian farmers? Sure. After three weeks uh, following the, the outbreak of the war, everything stopped. And mm. uh, then uh, we started to, to, to get a lot of um, contact from uh, the distributors, from the farmers, to, to try to maintain at least some supply of fertilizer to right. support uh, into the growing season. And uh, while uh, the normal uh, ways of getting fertilizer into the country are cut off. Uh, we've had to, to find other ways to bring fertilizer in. It's uh, still uh, small compared to, to, to where it should be, but it is making an, uh, an impact. And uh, as you pointed out, about 120 truckloads of um, fertilizer. And then uh, it's about getting that to the distributors, not in the fields. And, and we're following that with our people to make sure it's, uh, it's then also used as efficiently as possible because with lower supplies it's also about uh, helping with agronomic advice we get the most out of every nutrient that we can bring into ukraine now using digital tools to optimize the the use of the fertilizer to get uh, as much crop as uh, as possible but this is an uh, an ongoing um, uh, work in order to, to get this uh, out to the farmers and then it's also about uh, growing the food uh, are, are the farmers able to to get access to fuel, uh, if you get a, a, a crop uh, of, of, of size, are, are we able to then get it out of Ukraine? And I was in contact with David Beasley, just uh, of the World Food Program, uh, just last week. And Odessa, and what was happening now is that the, the, the inventories and there are ships in, in the port of Odessa that are not able to get out of Ukraine now with food to the rest of the world. So it's, it's incredibly complicated, and we all have a role to to play to try to get as much production as possible at this moment. I mean, we heard recently from the Ukrainian agriculture minister, and he said he believed that farmers had managed to plant around 20 percent for the spring season of what they would have done normally. So that gives, I think, a sense of 
of what they are managing to achieve, but also what they're not. You know, we were just showing images of some of your facilities, uh, Svein, and, and you mentioned it at the beginning of the of the interview too, the prospect of, of mines, the challenge, the security issues. Are you concerned that, that, that your people that are transporting these fertilizers in, but also your facilities there are, are a target? And of how course, do you protect uh, them? And, and, yeah. Well, and this is uh, extremely difficult. And, and again, I'm so impressed by the courage demonstrated by our colleagues and, and what they are doing every day to support food production. And, and it's part of uh, a, a bigger purpose as well. We're, we're a purpose-driven company uh, and our mission is to responsibly feed the world and protect the planet. So it, it's straight to the core of um, what we want to do to provide more food for the, the population and, and that calling is what is driving the organization. But but, but again, this is uh, above and beyond the call of uh, duty to, to to get out there and to support uh, the farmers and imagine also the, mm. the challenges and the dangers of the Ukrainian farmers that they're facing every day. So we, we will do uh, whatever we can. Uh, we have trained our people with, uh, in, in order to, uh, to, 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 to deal with this. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the risk and, and the pressure they're under, it's, it's unimaginable, really. Sven, I want to talk to you about something else that we're seeing as well, and it and it's, puts the whole picture together. We are seeing huge inflation in agricultural prices. We're also seeing accelerated production too for those farmers that think perhaps they can help, they can also benefit from the higher prices. We're seeing soaring fertilizer prices as demand for that increases as well as a result of the extra planting. I just, I fear and I wonder, and I I looked at your results, which were spectacular too, and it, it sort of brought it home to me again. Is there a concern of price gouging going on? Are there middlemen certain people in this process that are perhaps benefiting to an extraordinary amount from what's going on? And how do we stop that? Well, uh, right now, transparency, traceability, being open uh, about what is happening and and raising the the issues that we're faced with right now. And um, yes, the food prices are going up and that's driving uh, demand for fertilizer. And um, in, in addition to Russia being a key producer of agricultural uh, products they're also a supplier of nutrients so there's uh, to, to grow food fertilizers so uh, there, there's a shortage of, uh, of that as well and that everything is driving up the the, the prices at this uh, moment but we have to also keep in mind what happened with um, uh, the food crisis back in 2007-8 with very high prices uh, where um, three quarters of the increase in food prices were a direct result of uh, the, the lack of flow of food, uh, export bans, and so on, and that's also happening in, in today's uh, environment. But uh, as you pointed out, uh, our, our profits are uh, are up. It's a direct result of uh, higher crop prices driving uh, uh, demand. But we're, we've also been very clear that that's not how uh, we want to, to to make one. It's about uh, supporting the farmers, uh, helping to increase. Uh, uh, yields uh, and, and but also to then when we do make more money also to contribute to society so we're um, announcing another 25 million dollars of uh, fertilizer donation in coordination with the world food program and we did that back in 2020 as well um, in connection with the uh, COVID uh, where we were able to with our 25 million dollar contribution um, help farmers grow more food and we saw in, uh, in, in the in countries in Africa where we 
we, we were able to bring that product in. That we were able to triple the maize yields in the first season. Wow. And these farmers were able to produce the, the extra yield that they were able to get was enough to feed a million people for a whole wow. year. And uh, if you do the calculation, you know, what does it mean to uh, produce that much more food locally? Uh, well, if we look at the numbers that the World Food Program have to pay to feed people on the ground, it's about 50 cents a day. So this is about $180 million of, of value. So it's also about, you know, using uh, the profits to do something meaningful uh, and that can help to to lessen the impact. And this is a call to to everyone. Uh, the World Food Program is $10 billion short of uh, funding now. And, and that's really what needs to be done short term. We'll do our uh, part. Uh, also call for action from other businesses and, all, and wealthy individuals and governments to rapidly to move to, to, to bring up the funding. Yeah. Yes, and to your point as well, when three quarters of previous price increases are down to barriers, we have to remove those barriers or not put them up in the first place. And thank you for the $25 million donation to the World Food Programme. I was going to mention it if you didn't, sir. Great to chat to you. Thank you for what you and your team are doing. Svein Holsetter there, the CEO of Yara. We'll stay in touch. COVID curves are out. Globe trotting is back. Travellers making up for the past two years, lining up trips worth a record $27 billion with booking holdings last quarter. That's up 129% from a year earlier. The firm-owned sites, including Booking.com, Kayak and Priceline, and says a key trend across its brands this year is a strong rebound in Europe. Joining us now, Glenn Fogel, CEO and President of Booking Holdings. Glenn, great to have you with us. And oh boy, what a difference a year makes. I feel like this is going to be a very different conversation. COVID or otherwise, macroeconomical certainty. The message is people just want to get back out there and travel, I think. And, and your numbers reflect that. Well, thanks for having me. And yes, we absolutely are seeing that. Uh, it was a record for us. We've never had that level of bookings before. And it's continuing. Even in April now, we're still seeing very strong numbers. And we also are seeing our summer bookings being well ahead of where they were in 2019 at this time. So these are all positive uh, signs of people wanting to travel and getting out and trying to catch up, as you say, for the last two, two and a half years. Yeah, Glenn, you're often described as a U.S. company, but I think what our viewers and I often remind them, what we need to remember about yours is I believe that around 90 percent of your revenues are generated internationally versus within the United States. So you have an incredibly strong sense of of where perhaps the greatest demand is coming from and perhaps areas where are slow. Can you give me sort of the correlation between the bookings that you're seeing perhaps and the COVID restrictions that still remain in place? Clearly a very different picture in parts of Asia compared to places like the West, the UK, where you don't even have to do a COVID test now to, to get in there. Yes, that's absolutely right. And Asia is the laggard, definitely slower than the rest of the world. Uh, U.S., Western Europe doing very well. Eastern Europe coming back. Obviously, the horrific uh, war in Ukraine put a little bit of a damper on Eastern Europe in the beginning of the war in March, but things were recovering there too. And your point about restrictions is very important because when people feel it's safe to travel and when governments reduce or eliminate restrictions, that's when people start traveling more. And you're right about in terms of requiring tests or not. One of the things that I'm still uh, baffled by is the fact that to travel to the U.S., you need to get a test the day before you travel, which is not being seen in most of the world. And it's really hurting in terms of the U.S., incoming travel from people outside the U.S. A European can say, listen, too much trouble. I'm not going to go to the U.S. There are lots of parts of the world to go to, and they'll go to other places. So I hope the administration 
we'll make some changes there. Can you quantify the dampening effect that that's having? Do you have any sense, Glenn, just based on what you're seeing elsewhere in the world? Because it is a fascinating well, point. You know, it, it's hard to it's hard to know what people would do if the rules were changed. But I can just <laughs> say generically that I I came back from Amsterdam last Friday, and that meant Thursday night because a Friday five o'clock flight. So I had it's six o'clock Thursday because it'd be within twenty four hours. I had to go find a place to get a test, make sure that it came back negative, and then I could come home. It's annoying, and I just don't see the real benefit to it. Um, and we're not seeing it most of the world. So I do wish the Biden administration would re-examine this. Yes, I maybe I'm oversensitive to it as well, having gone through the same process in the in the last week. Um, you mentioned also um, some of the challenges as a result of what we've seen in, in Ukraine, Russia. And I know, at least for those two nations, it's a very tiny part of the business. But more broadly, for, for Eastern Europe and the, the sort of fear or chilling factor that we saw initially, to what extent has that recovered? Can you give us any any perspective? Yeah, no, this has been a horrific thing. And when the war first broke out, of course, the first thing I thought about was not the amount of business we would lose. It was how can we keep our people, our employees in Ukraine safe? What can we do? And we're able to get uh, the women in our um, organization able to be able to relocate them in safer places. The men, of course, who are of the age where they must remain in Ukraine, they are remaining in Ukraine. That was the first thing. But we also thought, what can we do to help the people of Ukraine? So working with our partners, we created a a no commission platform where people who are refugees from Ukraine going to select countries in Europe, we have homes and hotels that people can use if you're a refugee for free or a greatly, greatly reduced amount of money. And we now have over 30,000 Ukraine refugees have been able to take advantage of this platform and find a place where a bed a roof over their heads, a private bathroom, things that they really need so they can figure out what they're going to do next. And we're expanding it. And we just had an agreement with Hilton. Chris Nassetta, the CEO there, what an incredibly great guy. Hilton's participating with us. We created a new uh, platform. We're working with the UN um, High Commission for Refugees. That's their refugee agency. And working with NGOs to be able to find which refugees need housing the most. And those people are going to be able to go through our platform to a Hilton hotel that has been uh, designated to be able to take in some refugees. And we really want to expand this further. So doing what we can. And yes, I worry about the travel business, too. Of course, I'm concerned about what it's the impact on our numbers. Eastern Europe is coming back now. It was hurt at the beginning. But the first thought in my mind was helping the people who are being so so terribly affected by this. I mean, Glenn, that's a brilliant response. And, and I'm sure if, if there are people watching that could, ha- could perhaps benefit from that facility, they can find it on Booking.com. The website, is it, is it obvious on the, on the landing page? They can. Yeah, they can you go it. to Ukraine, you're looking, it's not hard. And don't forget, now we have the NGOs participating. Right. They're, gonna, they're vetting the people to make who are the people who need this, who are the refugees that really need it. That's really the best way we can do this because uh, what we really want to do is have a system that is fair, equitable, and making sure we're giving the most help to the people who need it the most. And Glenn, very quickly, your workers there, the ones that remained, how are they doing? It's hard. Look, this is a terrible situation for so, so many people. And it's it's interesting, the dichotomy between so many people excited about traveling, our business up, people are exciting to see the world again, travel, see your friends, family, enjoy life. And in other parts of the world, it's not the same. And it's it's you watch it on your television or however you get your news and it's it's really striking.
the happy people traveling enjoying other people it's tough we'll keep talking about it glenn congrats on the growth of the business and, and what you're seeing in the recovery and also thank you for what you're doing for um, for those suffering glenn fogel ceo you. and president of booking holdings so thank you Brazil's president lashing out at American actor Leonardo DiCaprio for his recent comments about the importance of the Amazon rainforest in the climate crisis. With deforestation of the Amazon advancing at a record pace, DiCaprio is actively urging Brazilians to vote in that country's election in October. But President Jair Bolsonaro has allowed extensive development of the Amazon since 2019 has pushed back. He denounced the actor's remarks about the Amazon as nonsense and said DiCaprio should, quote, keep his mouth shut. Now, high, high above Brazil on board the International Space Station, there's a spirit of cooperation despite events back on Earth. Right now, four astronauts are on their way home after spending half a year on board. And the Crew Dragon Endurance has undocked from the International Space Station. Four astronauts aboard the orbital outpost completing their six-month mission. The returning crew capsule is expected to splash down off the Florida coast early on Friday before leaving. NASA astronaut Tom Marshburn formally handed control of the space station to Russian cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev. The friendly handover was especially meaningful given the war in Ukraine raging below them. And I relinquish control of the or command of the space station to you. I accept command. I accept command. Thank you for here. Thank you for friendship. It, it was um, in um, unbelievable time together. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages shortly. You can search for at CNN. We'll see you tomorrow. Connect the World is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.